The name Norman Bell Geddes is not as commonly known as Thomas Edison, Alexander Graham Bell, or Henry Ford. But Bell Geddes' designs are reflected in everything from cocktail shakers to radios to kitchen appliances. I'm George Boldarki, and this is Cityscape. Norman Bell Geddes may be best known for the massive Futurama exhibit at the 1939 World's Fair in Queens. Alex Zerlip is the author of a new biography of the iconic designer and inventor. It's called The Man Who Designed the Future, Norman Bell Geddes and the Invention of 20th Century America. Alex is with me now in the studio. Alex, thanks so much for coming in. I appreciate the invitation. So Norman Bell Geddes has been called the Leonardo da Vinci of the 20th century. He had such a large impact on American life, but he's far from a household name. Why do you think that is the case? During his lifetime, he was known all over the world. He was huge. Now his daughter is uh, the actress Barbara, uh, who's no longer with us, uh, is more well-known. There are a number of reasons why he's fallen through the cracks, and that is one of several reasons why I wrote the book. So, What uh, drew you to Norman Belgettis? You want want this story? I do. Um, Okay. I have a character, well, it's nonfiction, so a person in the book who would later write, Accident is the Architect of Life. So one morning, very, very early, a Sunday in 2005, I was walking around the flea market, no caffeine, no food, nothing, um, not a good state for making financial decisions, (laughs) and I spotted this object, brown plastic, turned out to be Bakelite, it it looked like a grandfather to the Rolodex, and it had a, a kind of deco. It had a knob on either side and a slit with the alphabet at the top, and then there was a paper roll inside, and you could see people would take it out on their old typewriters and type in names and addresses and phone numbers. The thing that caught my very sleepy eyes was there was this dramatic red slash that went from left to right. And as you turn the knobs and the slash moved, if it lined up with a P, you'd be at the P's, if it lined up at the S. And I thought that was elegant. Of course, I was still half asleep. I had no use for this thing whatsoever. And uh, it was a $5 impulse buy. I found out later that it was called the Bates Index, and when I got around to really looking at it on the bottom, there was an etched plate with a very classy logo, and it said designed by Norman Belgettis, and the name sounded sort of kind of familiar. Uh, there was almost nothing on the Internet about him in 2005. So I started nosing around, and you might find a little bit in a coffee table book on mid-century modern design. It'll say, oh, you know, there's this seltzer bottle that he designed, and he did a skyscraper-shaped cocktail set, and that was about it. It didn't even mention Futurama, which was the most famous thing he did. Uh, So the more I kept hitting brick walls, the more I turned into a Rottweiler, and one thing led to another. So this this $5 impulse purchase ended up changing my life. Norman Belgettis did not grow up in New York City. He grew up in the Midwest. Absolutely. As did as did his contemporaries Charles Lindbergh and um, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and I don't think that that's an entire coincidence. The whole Midwestern ethos of tenacity and work, working hard being fundamental qualities of Midwesterners. So, what was his childhood like? He was born into great comfort in his one of his grandfather's houses, and. 
his father was kind of a spoiled, charming guy. Uh, his mother came from a much humbler background. And when Norman was about nine years old, his life completely changed. Um, his father had invested money in places that he thought were secure, and they lost everything. So he went from being in way above average circumstances to being seriously, seriously poor. And I think that that made an indelible impression. He was a high school dropout, right? Um, not, yeah, in the ninth grade, he... Um, I mean, beating students was actually kind of commonplace in in turn of the century. And his mother just said, you know, and he got beaten for ridiculous reasons, like he was sketching in his notebooks and things like that. And so his mother moved him to another school, and then he got in trouble again because he designed this mural that kind of made fun of the teachers. And and they were they were beating him, and he said, forget about it. And he was bored with school anyway. Uh, he never went back, and his daughter, who became a well-known actress, was ex- chip off the old block. Hmm. So no interest in school or studies and dropped out of school. When the family did have its wealth, they were cared for by several servants, including a Native American man named Will DeHaw, who had quite the influence on young Norman. He wasn't a servant, really. He was sort of a quasi-adopted uh, son of the family, but... Yeah, I mean, he um, worked in the garden and did stuff, and he helped to raise Norman, yeah, and Norman adored him. Norman was fascinated by Native Americans, right? Well, I think that's how it started, yeah, he was, and it ended up leading to his first theater concept, yeah. Let's go into the theater, because Belgettis started as a theater designer. Yeah, theater was his great love, and even when he was a small boy— he was making up little theaters and and writing scripts and bringing his friends in to do stuff. How and did he get into theater design? He was entirely self-made. I mean, he was interested in it as a kid, and he was always someone from a very early age who completely focused on something. His mother wrote, kept a journal when his, her kids were small, and he, even when he, she was, even when he was three or four years old, he was just unnervingly focused on anything that interested him. And one thing led to another. His first career was as um, a graphic designer. But did theater design for him start here in New York City or elsewhere? No, he he grew up in the Midwest, and he didn't come to New York until he was... He came for a couple of business visits uh, when he was doing running a graphic design studio. He became the most famous... Uh, commercial graphic designer in Detroit for a while, the most sought after. But it's some, and and then he went to L.A. for a while, and had all kinds of adventures there. But he, New York was the center of the universe. I mean, in those days, everybody felt that way. I mean, Scott Fitzgerald wrote about that, and uh, so it had to be New York. So, and he had no wherewithal because he had been sort of foolish about how. And by then, he was married. He had a small child. And that's how he got his name, right? His real name is his not first, Belgettis. His well, his birth name was Norman Melanchthon Geddes, uh, named after a, a saint, a seventeenth-century saint or something. Um, Bell was the nickname of his first wife, and they were a team, and they collaborated. And so he he also wanted to distinguish himself, and I'm sure he was thrilled to get rid of that ponderous middle name. Um, 
And so, yes, he became Norman Belgettis. And when the marriage eventually fell apart, he dropped it for a while because people would say, where'd you get that weird name? And he didn't want to go into that. But he pretty much kept it. And then his daughters both kept it. What's the story of Belgettis and theater producer David Belasco? David Belasco, the the Bishop of Broadway, because he always wore these priest collars, was considered the premier innovator of lighting on Broadway. And he had his own theater, and he had a lot of prestige. And Norman, through his own experiments, just without really even knowing very much, developed uh, a 1,000-watt spotlight. No such thing existed before. And he went in, he was in New York for a business trip for running the you know the graphics studio, and he sent some letters ahead to all the big theater producers asking for a meeting and Belasco, out of curiosity, I guess, said sure, and he went over there and he brought all his stuff, and Belasco thought that he was just a hick, and then he set it up and he showed the great advantages of cross-lighting and, and hanging spots in certain ways. I mean, you have to understand that in that the early 20th century, when a play was lit, it was just light blasted on it. You had footlights and you had just spots, and you just inundated the stage with bright light. There was no subtlety. There was no um, creating a scene that augmented the characters or the plot or the suspense. He introduced all of that, among many other things. And Belasco just, you know, said, go back to the provinces, kid. You're a hick. And then he took the idea and he claimed it as his own. And he had his electrician jury rig versions of what Norman had made with old um, uh, lanterns. And the next time Norman came back, I think is when he first moved back there with his family after his various L.A. fiascos. He was all over the newspapers. You know, Belasco has done it again. He's reinvented blah, blah, blah. So Norman ran out and bought a standing room only ticket in that the very theater that he had shown him the lighting to and he watched it and he was absolutely sick because not that it, I mean if only Belasco had had you know maybe let him be a part of it you know and uh, and didn't just steal it and claim it as his own and the only solace at the time was that he hadn't done as sophisticated a job and then many many years later there was a little balance in the universe when Norman ended up having Belasco's old office, Belasco is now gone, for and staged a play in that theater that, that out-Belasco'd Belasco <laughs> uh, with realism in a, in a very narrow stage, which is really difficult. And if you read any books about the history of Broadway theater, they still talk about that play that when the, when the... I don't know if there was a curtain or if it was just lights, but when it first... When the audience first saw the set that he designed in Belasco's theater, they were they were screaming and sighing and clapping. They were so overwhelmed because he did this this um, perspective thing that was. Um, which play was that? Dead end, dead end. Which was a a very kind of somber pre- play, and it was staged in the middle of the depression. So you think people wouldn't want to pay money to go see a play about Dead End was an actual place in New York, and it's about the rich butted up against the very poor. It was almost social documentary that today we would think of as melodrama. But it was a huge success. The guy who wrote it um, had a couple Pulitzer Prizes and uh, many things. He liked to write social 
issue plays. There was a what a friend of mine would call a cosmic speeding ticket, although it was it was a very slow speeding ticket. And uh, Norman outaced Belasco, who was long gone. Uh, in the end, your book recounts the story of Bel Geddes's work on the pageant play *The Miracle*. He turned a large Broadway theater into a Gothic cathedral. Hyper realistic, yeah. And that when they got the theater, they were contractually obligated to not destroy and no holes in the walls, no anything. I mean, how do you do that and create a Gothic cathedral? And uh, he did it. Uh, yeah, and it ran for many years. It went on tour. It became internationally well-known. What yeah. inspired Bel Geddes to make the move from theater design to industrial design? Well, first of all, the phrase industrial design didn't exist. The The, the profession that he founded didn't really have an, a name. It was the end of the 1920s, and everything was just, you know, World War I was over. Everything was changing so rapidly. Industry was becoming... The symbol of the age, aviation was taking off to <laughs> make a silly metaphor, and it just seemed like the world was was going to change and very very quickly. And he and the the people who were on top, as he said, when the smoke cleared, are the, be the people who changed with it. Plus, he'd been having misgivings about theater for a long time because he was coerced into doing his second best instead of his best, depending on what the producers wanted. And it was a lot of frustration. Uh, but he never, ever gave it up. He referred to theater as his fickle mistress. Mm. And he always went back to it, which is one of the reasons why he became a millionaire seven several times over during his life, but he died pretty much penniless because he was always investing in, in plays and, and, and Broadway plays are a huge black hole when it comes to money and, and a real crapshoot. Um, and, and a lot of the things he did were great successes, but a lot of them weren't. And then later on during World War II, he was doing projects for the military, some of them top secret, and some of them he was just so enamored with that it may be not quite what the military wanted, that he would finance them. And they were always on a grand scale. What were among those projects that he did for the military? Um, a lot of camouflage stuff. Well, the thing, one of the things about him that fascinates me is that all of these innovations he did in industrial design that he did for the military during the war, they all can be traced back to his theater work, right? Blackout stuff. That's basic theater. You have to know how to do that and, and so that the audience doesn't see that, that the sets are being moved around and um, all kinds of things. That's the most obvious example. He also designed training arenas, um, submarines with special scopes so that they could identify enemy um, sea vehicles without being seen. Now that stuff's kind of commonplace. Back then it didn't exist. One of the many interesting stories in the book is the remake of the Standard Gas Equipment Company's household gas range in the 1930s. Right, I guess the that was 1930. And, and then the Acorn, which was very similar. Yeah. yeah, he wasn't about to stand for the design that they had. Well, they came to him. Well, he also, I mean, he ended up having a, you know, his own company with a staff, so he would be out there hustling for work. But also, companies would come to him and and say, we want you. The idea back then was if you just prettify something up that isn't selling well, and and that's when he said, no, I'm not going to do that. If you want me, I'm going to give you a better product than you have. 
And if that's not okay with you, then find somebody else. So, and the other thing is that back in the 20s when advertising was kind of, it was around in the late 19th century, it was kind of in its infancy and it was about to hit the ground running. The idea was that industry would design new products and advertising's job was to convince the public that they needed those things. Nobody went to the public and said, what do you like about your stove? What don't you like? What could make it better? What makes you happy? I mean, that was radical because what the hell does the public know? Mm-hmm. But he did that. Yes. He, asked he, he That was one of 500 different innovations that he did. Uh, he, he trained a bunch of people. He got them railroad tickets. He sent them all over the country. Um, they had a series of questions that related to the stove. They never filled out the forms in front of the person they were talking to. They talked to housewives. They talked to people who sold the appliances. And then they compiled all that stuff. And the design evolved from that. And it revolutionized kitchen appliances to this day. The kinds of He introduced white enamel in, in kitchen appliances and in uh, refrigerators. Before that, people, women, were using coal and wood-burning stoves. They were bending over and had really sore backs. Their hair was singed. There was no timers. There was no. They were got grease underneath them. They were. I mean, there were a thousand things wrong with them. And also, they weighed a ton because they were cast iron for the guys who were delivering them. And Norman introduced a system based on the way skyscrapers are created uh, with sheets of lightweight metal that hang on hinges inside. So the whole thing was completely revolutionary. And the, also the company that SGE, their stoves that weren't doing very well, they had dozens and dozens and dozens of components. And Norman just narrowed them down to, I think, 16. You know, there would be four kinds of broilers and three kinds of this. And you could put them in different combinations, but it it radically changed. For all the changes that the company had to make in the factory because it was a different material, they saved zillions of dollars. It was a huge bestseller. It became an instant classic. And it looks an awful lot like the stoves and refrigerators that we have now. Bill Geddes is considered the father of streamlining. He's got a lot of names. That's one of them, yeah. He, He made streamlining a household word. Streamlining existed probably in the 15th century, although it wasn't very well known. But yeah, he was the poster boy. And what are the greatest examples of streamlining from him? Well, I mean, streamlining is is a theory that when something has an ovoid shape, that if it's moving through air or water, it will create less resistance than if it has, say, square edges. And it became all the rage to the point where he didn't want to have anything to do with it, you know, maybe 15, 20 years later. And there's some hilarious examples. It became the, you know, the the buzzword. And so there was streamlined potatoes and streamlined. I mean, it's a word that was designed to describe things that moved, particularly transportation ships and trains and cars and things. But very, very quickly, they were talking about streamlined women's underwear and streamlined typewriters. And, you know, it it became totally silly. Uh, He designed what I would call supersonic jets and ocean liners. 
the jet, by the way, had its own orchestra and solariums and masseuses. <laughs> and um, Never realized, just designed. Never realized, but the, the, his airliner number four is said to have greatly influenced the Spruce Goose, which was, what, 15 years later? Howard Hughes. Anything that had to do with transportation, and he had his fingers on just about every possible mode, embodied streamlining. Um, he designed some pretty cool cars that were never realized, too. He, and he worked on a lot of cars that were realized that he doesn't necessarily get credit for. The most interesting of which, I think, is the Chrysler Airflow, which still today is sometimes talked about as the worst disaster in automotive history, which is deeply ironic because it was, like the Tucker Torpedo, uh, so far ahead of anything that was on the road in terms of safety, in terms of comfort. And so, big surprise, all the big three in Detroit, General Motors on down, took out all their guns and all their lawyers, and they squashed it. And today, if you can find a Chrysler Airflow, and there are Airflow clubs all over the world, and certainly in the United States, and if they're in any kind of half-decent condition, they sell for mucho plenty. The book launch for this book, I have a whole chapter on the Airflow, and we had a launch at City Lights in San Francisco last week, and I found a guy in Sacramento who owns a mint condition, orgasmically beautiful maroon and black Airflow in running. He just recently drove it from Sacramento to Baltimore and back, and he drove it all the way down from Sacramento, which is close to a two-hour drive, just to be there for the launch, and it was wow. spectacular. Wow. Yeah, it was wonderful. Let's talk about what Bel Geddes brought to the 1939 World's Fair, Futurama, his big splash. Well, it's the, the thing he's most famous for, for anybody who might remember who he was. I'm hoping I'll have, a, in a small way, be able to change that. Uh, what he brought to it, he had a concept for Futurama. It wasn't Futurama then. He It was something he did in-house about improving highway congestion. I mean, Henry Ford brought out, you know, the Model T, and within 15 years, there were zillions of cars everywhere. There weren't even the roads to accommodate them. There were vehicular uh, manslaughter. I mean, people were dying by the hundreds of thousands. It was a mess. And um, so there was a great interest in automobiles and automobile safety. So he tried to sell the concept to different venues who were going to have a presence at the 39 New York World's Fair, including Firestone, the tire company, and everybody, and everybody shot him down. And he got shot down twice by General Motors, and then because he was very tenacious. it's I'm, Again, there's a whole chapter in there on that, how he managed to wrangle a third meeting with Alfred Sloan, who was the top guy there, even though everybody under Alfred Sloan knew that this guy had already been kicked out twice, and how completely against the odds. He pulled this thing off. And then when they gave it to him, they said, okay, well, you're not just going to design this concept, which he then expanded into a kinetic ride. But you, okay, fine. You want it? We're going to give you our entire pavilion. You have to figure out where the toilets go and where the fire things, you have to do the landscaping outside. I mean, this was a job that is inconceivable for any human being, regardless of who they were, to do. On top of that, he did another exhibit at the fair that is uh, sort of forgotten, which is hilarious because it was basically a strip-slash-girly show. <laughs> really? So the man never slept. He was just an absolute dynamo and uh, and very funny, too. He was a prankster. It was part of the pleasure of writing the book. He, and I had to leave a lot of the pranks out because the manuscript had to get a lot smaller than it was when I finished with it. 
For those not familiar with Futurama, it essentially brought people into the 1960s. People in 1939 got a chance to see what Bill Geddes thought the 1960s would look like, right? It convinced, I mean, America in 1939 was pretty unsophisticated, pretty rural, uh, and it introduced a concept of what the future was going to be or might be like. It was, it made a huge impression on people. It was also the middle of the Depression. And it included um, a ride where you sat in these luxurious mohair upholstered chairs that went above this very elaborate, every piece handmade scape of cities and towns. And they were coordinated uh, in terms of how high or low the ride. This all came from the theater. Right. And the thing to know is that in 1939, very few people had ever been in an airplane. And this was a simulated airplane ride. So it was thrilling, you know. Uh, And it had some other advantages, too. Like you walk the fair forever. They had what they called flushing feet because it was in flushing meadows. And in his ride, you just sat down and everything was done for you. So that was a lure. Uh, being able to sit next to your girlfriend and kind of carry on and smooch. Yeah, I mean, there were a lot of side lures, but the exhibit itself was revolutionary. And when Robert Moses did his panorama at the next New York World's Fair in 64, it was all lifted from that. It featured expressways. Right. Yeah, and clover leaves, and there was a lot of innovation. Uh, elevated walkways between buildings, so that you weren't on the street, you wouldn't be getting hit by cars, and it left that much more. There, there were a lot of concepts, and many of them were not didn't originate with him. They'd been around, but his brilliance was that he he brought them all together, and the whole was definitely greater than the sum of its parts. What would you say is the project he was proudest of? I'm not psychic, and even though we kind of, quote-unquote, lived together for many years during the <laughs> writing of this book, and I referred to him as my very demanding roommate, um, I I don't know if I... I hesitate to, to put words in his mouth, mm-hmm. you know? One thing he was very proud of was that he got to the point where he offered, he opened an office in, in the, the new, then new Rockefeller Center and had an, enti- an entire floor, the eighth floor in the... Um, I forget which building. It's the building, the press building, which is now, uh, it's probably Uber or a real estate company or something. I visited it about six years ago. And also Rockefeller Center had been designed by his good friend Raymond Hood, who was a very well-known architect who died young, and he died before Rockefeller Center was open. So partly, I think, privately it was an homage, but it was also so incredibly prestigious. Um, And he was... I think he was very proud of Norman Belgettis and company that he had come from nothing and and he was world renowned. Uh he was world renowned for his theater work before he ever got involved in industrial design when Sergei Eisenstein, the famous Russian filmmaker, came to New York, brought over by Margaret Burke White, the photographer who had been reporting in Russia for Forbes and Maggie was a friend of Norman's anyway and she said when Eisenstein got to New York for the first time, she said, well, you know, here we are in the center of the universe. Who would you like to meet? And the first person he said was Norman Belgettis, and mm. Maggie happened to know him, so it was all smooth sailing. They actually ended up being roommates for two weeks. He moved into Norman's house for two weeks. And if you look at photographs of the two of them, that re- really kind of made me laugh. They really could have passed for brothers. They didn't look exactly alike. They weren't exactly the same age, but... There, there was enough of a similarity, and also in their personalities, they were both pranksters. And on the other hand, they were both like totally folk. It just, and they both had strong interests in visuals, 
If you had the opportunity to sit down to talk with him, what would you want to ask him? What's the burning question? I should have a really clever re- response to that, but I and it's not that it hasn't crossed my mind a hundred times. I mean, friends of mine who've sort of suffered through all these years of me working on this and hitting brick walls and everything, you know, ask me questions like, well, you know, would you be into him? You know, <laughs> things like that. But uh, can I take a rain check on that question? You can take a rain I, check on I that question. I'll give you a pass. It. Thank you. How old was he when he died? He was born in 1893, and he died in 1958. So what's that, 60? Three sixty-four died on the streets of New York City of a heart attack. Yeah, on a lovely May afternoon, walking with a friend of his on his way to lunch. Yeah, he Don't. had the last ten years of his life or so. He was troubled with a with a a heart that was not up to snuff. So, but he also had a heart. In fact, he donated his corneas. Yes, he did, and no one except his wife, who was number four, knew that he had done that. Yeah, and when I was working in the archive, where I spent. 18 grueling weeks, not all at once, that would be impossible. Uh, When I stumbled onto documents that showed me that, it it was one of several eureka moments that I had. That's the bonus for doing all this tedious research work. I saw them, and I immediately thought, there's my ending. Oh, my God. Alex, thank you so much for coming in. Thank you. Alex Zerlip is the author of The Man Who Designed the Future, Norman Belgettis Since the Invention of 20th Century America. It's published by Melville House. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My thanks to producers Claire Drake and Zach Salas. I'm George Bodarki. Thanks so much for listening. It's WFUV and WFUV HD New York. Listener-supported public media from Fordham, the Jesuit University of New York. Music discovery starts here.